Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a special thing we have going on over at Inside Study Abroad. Earlier this week, we launched Global Pro Labs. These are online training and implementation programs that teach you the core functions and foundations of the professional work of international education and meaningful travel. So in 2021, we're going to be launching five separate labs. Uh, These are online courses, sort of mini courses, and each one is going to focus on a specific area. So the, the ones we have slated are the Marketing Global Programs Lab, the Study Abroad Advising and Management Lab, International Students and Scholar Lab, the Global Programs Development and Delivery Lab, International Admissions and Recruitment Lab. All right, so those are the five sort of core functions of our the field of international education. Of course, there's many other things we could cover, but that's what we're starting off with in 2021. Now, these are not going to launch all at once. So we're actually going to drip them out throughout the year. And the first one is going to happen in February, and that's going to be the Marketing Global Programs Lab. And what I'm doing right now is we're offering you all a chance to get all five of the lab trainings, all five Global Pro Labs, in a bundle at a massive discount. Now, this is going to go away very soon, this bundle deal. So if you want to get in on it, go to InsideStudyAbroad.com slash labs, L-A-B-S, and you'll get all the details about each of the individual labs, and you'll be able to buy the bundle now because the price will go up in the new year. Call it our, it's not Black Friday, but Black Friday deal, if you will. I hope that you'll go check it out. Just go to InsideStudyAbroad.com slash labs, L-A-B-S, and you'll get all the details about each of the labs. We have a little synopsis of each one of those and when to expect it to roll out throughout the year, and you'll be able to opt into the bundle as well. Of course, if you're not ready, you don't want to jump into it yet, that's totally fine. You'll have plenty of opportunities in the future to enroll in the labs. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll go and check out the Global Pro Labs. I'm really excited about this new development um, in 2021 and really up-leveling how we're serving and educating our community in the coming year and years to come. So enjoy this episode. I will see you on the other side. Bye. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. We are excited to have you here today. Thank you again. My name is Sam Cooper. Uh, I'm taking the reins from Brooke Roberts this week, and I hope to live up to her very big podcast shoes. Um, This is my first time leading a podcast, so I'm embracing the newness and ambiguity. Keisha, is this your first time doing a podcast? This is my first time doing a podcast. Also Uh, embracing it. Yes. We're going to embrace it together. So if you could send us some loving kindness as we do this, we appreciate that. Um, Even though it's Keisha's first time doing a podcast, she does have a professional podcast microphone, which I'm very (laughs) jealous of and I might need to invest in. Um, We're going to get started shortly. I just want to do some announcements before we jump into all things Dr. Keisha Abraham. Um, Uh. Please do, if you want to subscribe to the podcast and listen to the replays, Uh, I'm going to put some links in the chat shortly, if I could just figure out how to do two things at the same time. Um, 
And that way you can listen to the replays and find out about upcoming podcasts as well. And also we will be launching our fall um, Global Pro Institute. So the Inside Study Abroad Global Pro Institute. And if you wanna get updates on that and get on the wait list, um, please do so. I'm gonna drop some links in there. Um, I should have started with a formal welcome. Welcome to Inside Study Abroad's Inside Chat. This is our live recording of the Inside Study Abroad podcast. Uh, I'm here today with Dr. Keisha Abraham. Keisha is the president of the Abraham Consulting Agency, which we're gonna learn all about, and also a Jedi educator, which we will definitely talk more about. Um, audience, thank you for joining us. Please ask any questions. There is an ask a question button. Um, as we go through any questions you have that arise from our conversation or burning questions that you have, um, even before you joined that you wanted to ask Keisha about, we'll be sure to cover those either in our chat or at the end of um, once we've kind of gone through everything. So just to kick us off, we like to start with our guests sharing their own international education story. So Keisha, please tell us, what is your international education story? Well, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> um, my international education story, I think starts with my first international experience. Um, I was 12 years old and I went to Sweden uh, without my family, without my family, without my parents um, for, yeah, like my first, it was kind of in my mind, it was a first study abroad experience because I spent the whole time studying, even though we were there to play competition basketball. Um, it was a um, program, yeah, it's a long time ago. There's so many follow-up <laughs> questions to that. Please continue. I can barely even dribble these days. But back then, it was that was my life. And so um, I, had, I had traveled by myself without my family uh, to play in the U.S. Um, starting from age 11. And we won the Junior Olympics in the U.S. that year. So our team got chosen to go to Sweden to play. And it was an incredible experience because we lived in a dorm kind of situation with students from all over the world. Mm. And so every day I was spending every free moment I could get away from practice, just talking to other kids from other countries. I wanted to know, like, what is it like living in Lithuania? You know, what's Romania like? What do you do in, you know, name the country? I mean, people were literally there from all over. And we lived in this building probably for about three or four weeks before moving up to Denmark. Um, and it was just an extraordinary experience. I felt like I finally had a chance to kind of engage with the world and I just needed to know more. Mm. So I, you know, I read a lot as a kid. I was like my favorite pastime as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so I was reading a lot about Southern Africa. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to go there. And there were no, you know, at the time, this was still apartheid South Africa. Um, mm. It wasn't really in the cards. My parents were like, yeah, I don't know about that. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I was planning for that life, but um, I had a horrible, uh, well, horrible in some in some ways, car accident when I was 16 and mm -hmm. broke all of my limbs. And so I needed something to entertain myself with while I was in the hospital. And I figured, why don't I apply to study abroad? Uh, so <laughs> Why not, you little academic to be? <laughs> So I got my French teacher, you know, people were coming by every day to bring me my homework and, and kind of keep me up with school. I got the French teacher to bring me um, applications to study in France. It was the language I was doing at the time. Okay. And, um, you know, I thought well, that's, that's what you do. You study abroad in France if you're studying French. Because I didn't have I didn't have any advisors. There was no one telling me how to do this. Yeah. And of course, my French teacher was from France. And so she was like, that's where you learn French. 
Um, and so, I mean, it's a pro tip and a good one. Yes. Right. Right. I mean, I could have been so many other places, of course. Now we know the diaspora and everything, but at the time that was just the pinnacle. Oh, so, sure. uh, you know, I, I, I learned how to write with my left hand so I could fill out my application myself and sent it off. And, um, I'll never forget the day I was standing in the doorway. We were on our way out for a family vacation. Um, and I just learned uh, how to use my crutches and gotten out of the wheelchair. And I was really excited because it was like the first trip we were going to take and I was going to be independent. And the mail arrived just as we were leaving the house. And in the mail <laughs> I love was... What's going to happen? <laughs> I got the letter from AFS, which is the company I went with, wow. offering me a full scholarship to study abroad in Italy. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Not France at all. Yeah. France. The letter that had an apology twist. in it. Yeah, big plot twist. Like, um, okay, I guess okay. I'm going to Italy. Yeah. <laughs> yep, and it was incredible. They really thought about placement in a great way. And so they sent me to uh, Ivrea, which is, uh, and I live with a family who spoke both French and Italian. So I could actually continue with my French oh, wow. okay. and start learning Italian. Yep. Wow. So just to recap, you started with Sweden mm -hmm. and then ended up in Italy. But mm -hmm. this was high school. This was a, so, was a high school program. How long were yeah. you there for? In, it was a high school program. It was for the full summer. Um, okay. And, you know, by that time, I had already decided that, you know, although I was learning French and now studying Italian, I was I was still committed to going to Southern Africa. So I knew that whenever I got to college, I would need to, in my mind, I had decided I needed a portfolio that really helped to show my international um, interest. And yeah, so, okay. you know, I was volunteering all over the place for everything possible around anti-apartheid missions and uh, working a lot at, you know, at the Carnegie Mellon University, um, spending time at the shanty towns there and engaging with South African poets and activists, people who had been exiled and really thinking like the international exposure that I got living with different families and getting to know people was saying, I needed to still know more. I needed to really engage with people, especially in the African continent in a real way. So I got to do that when I went to college. Okay, and where did you do your undergrad? So I went to Spelman College. Um, people always make fun of me because I don't know how to say it without like straight. <laughs> <laughs> and why shouldn't you, is what I say. <laughs> Yep, I was very, I'm a Spelman alum. Um, I went to Spelman and told uh, Dr. Gantz, Marjorie Gantz, who was a the study abroad advisor there at the time, yeah. that I would be going to South Africa. And she was like, no, you're not. I'm like, no, but, <laughs> but I have to. I spent my whole life getting to this point. And she was like, yeah, but we're not sending you there. Um, if you want to go abroad, you've got to go to Zimbabwe. I guess I'm going to Zimbabwe. And I thought I could go as a freshman. And she said, no, we don't do that here. <laughs> You go for your junior year and you'll have a great time. So yeah, spent the whole first three years trying to get to South Africa. Wow. And so you did sort of traditional junior year abroad? I say traditional. I did. Yeah. Yeah, super people. traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Studying in at the university. In Zimbabwe. Yep. I studied at the University of Zimbabwe, um, you know, classes there. And it was a great program um, because Kibo Kile and Dengoj Vogbo, who is in the field of international education still, she's at Pitzer College now. She was at Scripps Pitzer back then. Um, but based in Harare, their program uh, had us staying in several different types of homestays. And so we moved around the country and then went to university. So it was a really great introduction to the different layers and levels of, of Zimbabwean society. Wow. And did, did you ever study in South Africa? Did you ever make 
that I yes. did. It yeah. did. So I mean, I, did. I had no doubt based on the trajectory of that story. He was gonna do it. I was gonna do it. Yeah. Despite all the warnings, you know, Kimo Kile brought a guy from the State Department to talk to us about how we couldn't go to South Africa and you know, it's not safe and it's spring. I know you want to do what you want to do for spring break, but here's what we advise. So, of course, we bought plane tickets, a friend of mine and I, and that's what we did for our spring break of that year. I'm sensing a team, a Jedi team. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you follow the force, right? It yeah. leads you. <laughs> yep. And then, um, fortunately, in graduate school, um, fortunate and maybe, I don't know. Yeah, fortunate for me. Okay. Um, my graduate program didn't have a lot of people who were, um, really working on the content. I went to a fantastic university, uh, but there was a lot of a lot of questions that I still had uh, and, and information I still wanted to learn. Mm. And so we were able to set up um, my, after my second year of graduate school, um, I was able to do a residency for a year um, in South Africa, in Durban and in, and in uh, Zimbabwe. So it was kind of split between the Feminist Studies Center and the University of Durban, KwaZulu-Natal. Okay, yeah, so where did you do your graduate program and what what were your academic interests what what how ha, ha, talk to me about your academic journey um oh. as well and, and how those interests sort of so i went to through. um binghamton university which is yeah. in upstate new york yeah i have been there i have been really? there. yes i have what? i've been there um many moons ago when i worked at usa um international internships um because we were setting up a program with them um i for the life of me can't remember what program i feel like maybe madrid um, okay. But I was, yeah, I've been on the campus. Um, wow. I remember really like it. Yeah, I know. Don't be so surprised. <laughs> there might be other people here on the chat that have also been. So let's know. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great place to be. Um, I went there particularly to study um, combination of Africana studies, Africana literature, okay. and autobiography, and women's studies. Those are the three things that I was passionate about when I got to Binghamton. And in particular, excuse me, I wanted to work with um, scholars who were really working in in, in autobiography um, and and in Africana, African women's literature. So I went to, I thought my approach to graduate school um, was to find people that I wanted to work under and really right. kind of dive deeper into, you know, the areas of scholarship that they had been working on. And so I went to work with Carol Boyce Davies and with um, uh, people in the, in the comp lit department, that's what my degree was in. Um, and there, it was, you know, they're, they're, um, in the popular education space. Those are also, that was also be something that became a passion of mine while I was there. And so I got to work with Maria Lugones, who taught me a lot about cultural equity, um, mm -hmm. and kind of what this meant in an educational context. I had had teachers, of course, in multicultural ed at Spelman, but this was a whole new way of thinking about education coming at it from a popular education standpoint and really thinking about how we apply our cultural uh, context to how and, and what we learn. Um, I, I kind of want to jump because you brought up cultural equity kind of into the topic of what we're doing. Um, I might come back to some questions because I am also curious about your path into international education as a field, right? So how, how that happened. Um, but since you brought up cultural equity, can you tell a little bit more? Because um, I know when we spoke a few weeks ago for ASAP, which is a local association here in the UK, um, which is the Association of American Study Abroad Programs in the UK, ASAP UK for short, it's a mouthful. Um, we did talk about cultural equity and you gave us a definition, but I think maybe for listeners, it'd be great um, um, to learn more about sort of your definition of cultural equity and, and really in the field of international education right now, what it means. 
Sure. Um, I, so cultural equity is something that I think is one of the elements that's been missing a little bit from how we've been thinking about the field and how we engage it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a wonderful statement that uh, is, is kind of my favorite on the topic at the moment. It was put out by Americans for the Arts. Um, and the definition there is that cultural equity embodies the values, policies, practices that ensure that all people, including but not limited to those who've been historically underrepresented based on race, race, ethnicity, age, disability, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, socioeconomic status, geography, citizenship status, or religion are presented in the development of, and I'll just say policy here, as opposed to necessarily arts policy, Mm. um, the support of ensuring that all spaces are equitable, they're accessible, um, that we're really thinking about, you know, what what makes a space, what makes an opportunity feel balanced and feel welcoming for all people? And what what does it mean right now for in international education at the moment? Obviously, we're talking about it as a as a world, um, mm-hmm. but for our field and and practitioners and what we're trying to do, what does it mean? What do, so, yeah. yeah. So part of it, I think, um, for me, it ties back to my educational experience and to um, what it means to feel centered in the world. Mm-hmm. So by attending historically black college, I and and having parents who went, who went to historically black college parents who insisted that I had black and brown dolls and toys around me all the time, that I read literature that was about my own culture, that really centered me as a black American woman. Mm. Um, it meant that my lens to the world wasn't um, having a point of reference, a culture that's outside of mine. And I think a lot in edu- international education, we've really centered the experiences of those who we continue to refer to as traditional study abroad students, which we know to be white uh, women, Mm-hmm. usually with some financial means, yeah. um, who attend predominantly white institutions and who are taught by predominantly white faculty and who travel usually to European destinations or places that they have a heritage connection to. And if they go to places that are outside of that, then they're going to places where they can be of service. And service usually means service to people who look like me. Yeah. Right. So cultural equity in international education suggests centering the experiences of people of color, centering the experiences of non-binary people, centering the experiences in a way that says the world can look like you are in a majority. The world can present itself in a way that gives you a sense of ownership and agency in it. So this is a quick example of that. Um, Mm -hmm. If we're looking at programs, let's say in South Africa, for example, then you'd think that we would want to have more educators who are people of color who are leading that program. Courses that included, our coursework might include some of the indigenous languages from the, from the, from the country yeah. so that people could get a sense of what is the cultural context that is indigenous to this location and doesn't necessarily refer to its colonial history or its colonial past. Great. Right? Yeah, that's really helpful. How, how, how did you get Talk to me about your academic journey of your interests into sort of becoming a Jedi and also getting into sort of administration. And maybe that's not the right word, actually. The administration and practition of, of international education. I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you made, how that journey took place. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for, um, a friend of mine years ago had this, has this phrase that I really like so much and I feel like it kind of, um, has been a guiding force for me um, that I don't read history for facts. I read it for clues. Mm. 
Mm. And so oh, I love that. <laughs> so I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Oh, Dorothy is smart. That was her yeah. phrase. I don't read history for facts. I read it for clues. And so that's kind of how I've approached my educational experience, like from childhood forward. I would always look for what am I not learning? What am I not finding in the textbooks? And what else I need to know about myself and about cultures, right? And so the same when it comes to came to international education. I, um, having, by the time I got to uh, becoming a professor, I had lived and worked in, a, in really just about every continent except for Asia. Um, as a researcher in different ways, um, working with women's communities, literature, you know, um, writing, writing groups, um, and doing a lot of work around um, knowledge production and, and naming of things, right? And so okay. I eventually came to work here in South Florida um, at a historical black college here. And uh, I went there as a faculty member in the English department. But for me, I, you know, my background isn't in, it's in literature, it's in English, right? In the complete department, but it wasn't like English composition or, you know, necessarily Western literature. And it was so fascinating to me to look at the core curriculum and realize that the requirements were really that people studied European Western literature. And I'm like, why? Why? (laughs) It's great. You know, I read all that stuff, too. And it's really great. But there's all the rest of the world here. Right. And it's in South Florida. Mm. So every course I taught was going to be global. And it just was every it didn't matter, you know, what the topic was, we're going to go there. And so. Um, early on, I started to realize that number one, there weren't a study abroad programs at the institution at that time. Um, nobody was going abroad. Nobody was really talking about it. And that was problematic to me. And so I just one day went to the provost and asked, could I do that? Like, there isn't, it's, it's not here. I'm looking for clues here. The clue is that they do have, they didn't have language programs, several language programs, but there was no uh, international education uh, as, as, as part of the culture. And so um, it took about a year or two, and then they said, "Sure, you know, you can you can do that." Um, and this was after I had come back from from uh, I took a leave for a while, and I was working in back in the Caribbean. I had uh, done some Fulbright work in um, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Tobago. And okay. so when I came back to the university, I was thinking much more about kind of Caribbean heritage. How what is the relationship between the African descended people from the Caribbean who were living and going to school at this institution and black Americans and kind of what is a space, how do I figure out how to get more cultural dialogue going on between them and also understand some of the challenges that faculty were going through. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of an entry point into talking about study abroad and international education okay. at the level that really talked to people where they were, right? Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily first go out into the world, but let's just understand more about who we are here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and very quickly, I think around the same time, I had been asked to be the chair of the humanities department, which is the largest department at the college. And so that allowed me to then kind of bring the global influence into the communications program, the um, uh, music program, all the different programs that were connected yeah. to that. And then I became the dean at the college. And so I was deaning in international educationing and <laughs> professoring simultaneously. And I know for some people it was like, with this one, please stop talking about global yeah. everything. But <laughs> no. it was, yeah. I couldn't, right? It was like a perfect storm. Like how yeah. else could I get international education really growing and moving at the institution if I hadn't accepted those 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 administrative positions? And so it was kind of balancing academics and, and running uh, the programs. And at the same time, kind of having to lobby for space where there was no space, you know, like my first office on that campus was literally a closet that I asked for and yeah. then borrowed furniture from folks. And that was enough. People started coming and 
Um, I was really fortunate because it was also around the same time that organizations like Diversity Abroad were starting. Yeah. Uh, and so they asked to come to the campus and host them and spend as long as possible bringing students to the office to talk to them and get them around to meet other faculty members. Um, and really just kind of kept <laughs> kept banging that yeah. the bell, like we have to get this folks, we have to do this. Um, and so there it became not so much about numbers, but more the depth and breadth of the possibilities that international education could represent on that campus. That's great. It, it's something that Brooke and I talk a lot about inside Study Abroad and with our Global Pro Institute is not asking permission to do things. Um, it, that if you have an interest, if you have a passion for something, it's, if it's not in your job description, it doesn't mean that's not something you can pursue. Um, and that's what I kept thinking as you were, as really every story you've told. I just don't, I love that you don't ask permission. You're just doing it. Yes. We need much more of that, I think. Um, Sorry, that was more of a comment than a question. Sorry, folks. Um, tell me about how, congratulations on your consulting agency. Thank you. And tell me about how that came to be um, and a little bit more about what, what it is and what you're doing and what you're <laughs> hoping to do. Okay. Um, so I, um, while I was working at Florida Memorial, I was able to work with a lot of different historically black colleges and other institutions that fall under the category of what the US likes to refer to as minority serving institutions, yes. that I like to refer to as majority surviving institutions, using the same acronym, but thinking about really who the populations are on those campuses, right? Yeah. And so because of my own personal background there, both of my parents went to HBCUs, like I mentioned, my grandfather went to an HBCU. I really wanted to, as I started to get deeper into thinking about what it was possible with international education and looking around at our institutions to consider what they were offering, I really wanted to do more to serve those institutions and make sure that every single solitary student has a chance to study abroad. I'm always telling students that you have not finished college if you have not studied abroad. <laughs> it is an essential part of your education, right? And so um, I was really um, blessed to be able to participate in a lot of, of, a lot of opportunities to um, increase um, capacity at, at international at, at capacity for international education at those institution types, and so one of those programs included um, what used to be called Project Passport. It was yeah. an initiative that was right. It was a, it was a partnership between CIEE and the Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Um, I was invited to be a guest speaker the first year that they ran the program uh, to talk to uh, college presidents about campus internationalization and study abroad. And then they ran the program a second year and I was invited back again to talk to the next group of presidents. And the third time the call came, the conversation was, okay, we are gonna create a position around this work and maybe you wanna consider it. Now, you know, at that point I had tenure, right? Um, I had tenure at Florida Memorial. Yeah. Um, I was teaching only the classes that I really wanted to teach and international education was growing. I had just opened there the sent the um, global citizenship portal which was another space that I commandeered. There was no, I wanted a more visible space for students to uh, think about international education. And so I asked for space in a large um, classroom building and where many of the faculty offices are. And they kept saying, well, there's no space. All right, but there's this big hallway. So can I just get some glass? So I made I a big glass that. enclosure. <laughs> I made this global citizenship portal and it was see-through. So you could see yourself in that portal. You could see yourself traveling to other countries oh, wow. from being in that space. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
classrooms, you know, classes would come in there and, and, and have, uh, you know, Skype conversations with students in other countries. And it was really growing. And so I was in a really good place at the institution. But here was this opportunity to, in my mind, go off and really do something major for HBCUs and other MSIs and other students who needed to experience international education and to work with administration at those other colleges to ensure that this really could take root. Yeah. So I left and I went to work at CIE um, and was really Where grateful for that. That's right. I was <laughs> yeah. so grateful for that. <laughs> It's to meet Laura there who's on this call. And it was just really wonderful experience. I went there with the, the intention to do that work with HBCUs and MSIs and also to work with the faculty, sorry, the faculty and staff throughout the CIE network yeah. um, on what they were referring to there as diversity and inclusion efforts, right? Okay. So much of that at the time was about access, right? The passport program, providing more passports to students. Yeah. Uh, and so that was that was the intention in going there um, to to really kind of spread and, and deepen again the work, uh, and then um, for you know there was the wonderful moment this spring we were preparing for the um, uh, so kind of summer institute the worldwide meeting where more trainings oh, yeah. happen with the faculty and staff right we were preparing for Miami summit that was supposed that. to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was like one of the big opportunities I would get to talk to people in person and, and really do some in-person training. Yeah. And then March happened. We had a pandemic. <laughs> had a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it came with some news, some new news, some new transitions, mm -hmm. uh, including that I would be one of the um, 691 to be, uh, right? <laughs> I'm in that number with you. <laughs> powerful number to be in. I feel it like is. all of us have now transitioned to new things. We're really looking at what was our real, what was our real purpose? You know, what yeah. are we really here for? What do we really want to do? I really believe that. I, I, I want you to continue because I, I do want to, I'm really curious how, I, I feel many people have taken this moment um, that has been very difficult for many as a real sort of phoenix from the ashes to really actually focus on what's important and how you want to have your life. And that actually, that happened with me. Um, and so uh, and so I have found really inspiring stories come out of, of this moment in, in, in international education um, and yours is one of them. Um, and so how did the agency, I don't know how you refer to it. The agency, That's it, that's okay, totally it. it. Yeah, how did yeah. the agency grow from this? <laughs> yeah, so I, that's a perfect way you would ask it. I mean, really it grew because I recognized that I needed to claim my own agency. Yeah. You know, there's that. something, right? I needed to really claim my own personal agency and get back into the world with that as my spirit. Um, that's such an important factor of being an academic, and it's something that I think we sometimes mm -hmm. take for granted. Um, it's something that I felt like I was losing a little bit by working in a corporate structure. And so I had to kind of say, hold on, I came here with a lot. I came to this space with a lot. I came here with a lot to give. I came here with a lot to learn and a lot to share. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to use my personal agency um, and the, uh, the desire that I had that took me to this new job to create a space where I can do only what I want, yeah. when I want, the way I want to do it. And yeah. so that's what I'm doing now. 
I mean, the theme, I think the overarching theme is that Keisha does do what she wants when she wants it and how she wants it. Um, and it's inspiring. Um, uh, also, just on a personal note, it's been so wonderful getting to know you more in this pandemic. I feel like this is one of the, the silver linings for me. I feel um, the same way. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it is inspiring. I, I think it's really hard to start your own thing. Um, and well, I'll speak for myself and scary. It's, it's yeah. scary to be out there and um, not sure if you're if you're doing the right thing or making the right decisions um, or if what you do has value. I think obviously oh, yeah. what you do, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but what, t tell me more about what you're hoping, sort of what types of projects you're hoping to do mm -hmm. with the agency, um, what your vision is. And also, I'm just going to add on a really big question to this as well. We're in this moment of international education where so much can happen. Um, now that you have your, your agency, what do you want it to look like? What do you mm -hmm. want to do with the agency and what do you want international education to look like? Ooh, I know it. Sorry. <laughs> A big one. <laughs> um, let's see. So I want to use my agency to help others find their agency so that we can work together to make positive social change and to uh, use to, to use that energy to uh, decolonize study abroad, really, to decolonize our practices and our, our, our ways of working in this space to really genuinely take the threads that were that started. I like to think about things in terms of like braiding, because okay. to me, it's like a really nice way to make a, a bond, yeah. right? Yeah. So we had threads that were diversity, that were inclusion, international, that's great. But to really make a strong bond, I think you need the other components as well. And so justice, that's where J, the J and the E of my Jedi, where yeah. it comes from, right? So we need justice, justice and equity to make real change in diversity and inclusion in international mm. education. Um, I think that's true in all fields, but specifically in this field. Um, and that comes, that's at every level. And so one thing I'm, I'm, the agency is here to do, and that's also why, you know, I refer to it as the agency and sometimes it's consulting, sometimes it's agency, um, is because one of the spaces is to make room for partnership, to work with people who have questions about how to improve, how to, how to grow in those spaces whether it be justice, equity, diversity, or and or inclusion, any of that space, yeah. um, how to bring in more kind of people of color, how to do more um, that centers our experiences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're open to working on projects with folks. We have been, uh, one of the things I really love is, is kind of holding space for people. Mm -hmm. So that could be in the form of mentoring, working with um, individuals or with a, a small group of people who are then going to lead a DNI charge for some other folks. Um, we are working on some course design program projects right now, uh, really kind of opening even our, our, our lens in terms of what we're thinking about in terms of international work. So some companies that do uh, work that serves students and communities in a global context, we might not necessarily have thought about as international education related and kind of looking at ourselves as a bridge, right, between those kind of spaces and some potential opportunities for international educators. Yeah. Um, a big piece for me is um, remaining connected, specifically with um, communities, with people in the field who have been kind of doing the work of DNI for a really long time and who also need a sense of community support, right? Yeah. So yeah. we, many of us, right, work at different organizations. And I think that's one of the things that was so fascinating before is like, there's every organization seemed to have like one or two people of color somewhere in there. Yeah. But nobody had like a lot. <laughs> nobody had like a whole yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to be the whole lot. I'm trying to make sure, <laughs> you know, and I'm not asking anybody to leave their day job. You know, if you have a day job and you work for a company, that's fine. 
that there's space for you here in the agency mm. so that you can claim your agency to make change in a way that you believe in. I love that because one of the questions I was going to ask you later was how can people that that want to work, that want to be a Jedi, right? Star Wars Jedi. <laughs> I'm a big Star Wars fan, everybody. Uh, and I love the term Jedi. It's my new favorite thing. But people that are interested in doing this work, and like you said, with, like I said, without permission, but it, they don't have to necessarily change their careers, or maybe they do, they want to get involved in the field. Mm -hmm. What is your advice to those that are interested in doing this work now? So one of the things I've been doing a lot with people is getting them to write vision statements and really think about them without any boundaries. Um, it's an exercise that I've done for myself a lot over the years. Um, and it wasn't really until this moment of literally having no boundaries in my life, like yes. none, you know, for the yeah. first time in my whole life, I don't, nobody tells me what to do. I don't, you know, I just here in my little house doing my thing and, you know, um, not reporting anyone. And so I think every time I had tried doing this exercise before, there was still some part of my mind that had a connection to uh, responsibility for someone or, or to someone or in some way. And so my responsibilities now are to justice, are to equity, mm. you know, are to making things better in a way that is um, that I know my intentions are being received and put out in the right in, in, in a way that can be impactful. And so I think that vision statement thing is really important, kind of taking some time to figure that out. And then also uh, a problem statement kind of writing out what you think the big problem is. And so I knew that before it, there was it was a problematic to me that we can have spaces talking about diversity and inclusion where equity wasn't allowed to be said or where equity was an issue. Uh, you can't really have it without equity. You, you, you kind of need that in order for it not to just be about numbers and so that the intention is really about making an impact in the communities that you really want to serve, right? Yeah. So figuring out kind of what problem do you see and what do you want to, how do you want to use your agency to solve that problem? Mm. And then from there, like knowing that, kind of helps to make the space to figure out how to do it. What's, what's next? Like, how do I apply that vision statement then to doing something concrete? Okay. One of the questions I wanted to ask you sort of in, in our talk about this talk about cultural equity and education abroad is you mentioned deepening approaches to diversity in our field beyond this idea of access driven and PR statements. What kind of approaches, um, I don't know, if, you know, just to give some tips and tools to people that are mm -hmm. listening in, um, you know, what can people do in our field right now to make a difference? And and I'm curious about things that are also policy um, mm -hmm. that can be policy driven um, and also things that practitioners that are like me on the ground in a location um, directly working with students, what can they just do? What do they not need permission to be able to just do, right? Okay, yeah. So I'm gonna start with the end, with the, the end part okay. of where we're back. Um, so part of that, I think, is getting to know the cities, getting to know the places where you're working in and where your students are um, from a different lens. So um, I was working in London a couple of years ago and it was interesting, and it's always interesting like when people think of London, for example, I'm just gonna pick on London because it's, a, it's yeah, a pretty please. clear example, right? <laughs> So, you know, it's possible to go to London and still think about it from the perspective of uh, it being a place that didn't colonize anywhere. 
And that Which, didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just not true. The one. The one that that one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. we think about the fact that that happened. That means that everybody's living in London. And so then it's like, oh, well, let me think about then where are all the communities that were impacted by this act? Mm. Let me go and get to know those people. Let me go and find, like, do they have museums? Do they have cultural centers? Are there archives? Or who's working in this space? So that's the first thing. I think it's making local connections, finding what's available. And I know most of us are not outside of our homes right now. We're still inside. Sure. But that does it. That's a great, it's still a great opportunity to kind of go online and kind of do some searches for things. Um, I was already aware of a lot of, um, you know, like my mind, I think I, I'm, I think about them as black spaces. Uh, mm. There's a place in Jamaica that I, I work with sometimes. It's called Black Space. Um, and there's something really empowering about that, right? And so these aren't necessarily spaces that are exclusively black by any means. And I think that's something I just want to um, kind of drive in a little bit more too, is that even historically black colleges are not exclusively black. They are historically black. And so mm. like a place like Brixton is not exclusively mm. black by any means. But because it is a Black-centered space, mm. you're going to see, you know, foods from the Caribbean all over the place. You're going to see African fabrics all over the place. I think I bought these in Brixton. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, if I were to walk around here and I'd say to somebody, oh, where do those come from? London. They'd be like, no, but where do they really come from? Yeah. Right? I hear so you. Yeah. that's part of that process of thinking about how do we think about the spaces we're in in a way that is much more inclusive and that kind of dives a little bit deeper into our Jedi mind, right? That lets us use the force, lets us use our proper intentions to see more broadly like the Jedi. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't love you more right now that you just made that connection in a beautiful way better than I could. Uh, <laughs> I gotta give props to Tanya, Tanya in Australia who recognized the Jedi. She brought it up and I just gotta give you all the praise to that, Tanya. I really appreciate it because it really helped to kind of center this work in a way that I, I'm really grateful for. Just in an acronym, like she just wrote a sentence. Yeah. She's like, oh, you know, so you do justice work, mm-hmm. justice, equity, diversity. And there we are. Yeah. yeah. Using the force <laughs> in education yeah. abroad. Oh my gosh. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And so that's really like in every part of that question, I think that's really what it's about is kind of looking for what, what force, what agency do you have to make change mm. in any of the spaces you're in? So from a policy standpoint, I hear people all the time talking about hiring, right? Like, well, you must hire. You've got to think more broadly in your hiring practices. And that might mean looking outside of the spaces where you normally seek to hire, right? So consider, you know, some, uh, consider the cultural organizations even as spaces to get to know where some of the people that you want to find are. So Mm. by that, I mean, like, we happen to be at the Brixton Cultural Archives, uh, just walking around today. And I, I... I, I do talk, even though I consider myself an, an introvert, I do tend to talk to people kind of everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> in the archives, this lady's taking notes, she's walking around. You're making we, friends, yeah. <laughs> she turns out to be a professor of Africana studies who's based in London, been there for a really long time. And I'm like, oh, would you be interested in international education at all? Actually, yes, I teach international students all the time. Okay, here, colleagues, here's somebody to consider. Here's somebody, yeah. Right? And then it's not just saying, you know, take that one person, but following that thread. So if I can meet that person there, maybe contacting the people who work at the center, there may be a whole a whole bunch of historians, a whole bunch of social cultural workers, people who do the tours of, 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 of different places may actually have some academic backgrounds in different ways. It could be really important to the work you're trying to do in a particular location. I just don't buy it when people say they can't find anybody, you know, people of color or enough diversity in their local space. I think it's really just thinking differently, using the force of your mind to think differently and look outside of the, you know, look outside of the spaces that you're in. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, be sure to type in questions if you have any questions. I have a couple more um, for Keisha. Um, and uh, we'll also do a rapid fire question round, um, which is just more, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, it's all, it's all very fun. Um, uh, let me make sure I can see if anyone's asked a question. Uh, I don't see any questions yet, so just double checking. Um, so again, if you're still with us, please let us know if you have any questions. Something you brought up um, that I definitely wanna touch on um, before we actually went live, you talked about um, universities that are um, creating. So one of the questions I was gonna ask is what about sort of, uh, my brain has just stopped, of course. Um, okay. one, um, one of the questions I was gonna ask was, what about doing sort of bias training, diversity training, et cetera, as yeah. part of international ed? But then you made a really good point um, uh, earlier that I'm just going to get let you go ahead and say because for some reason I'm struggling to speak right now. No, no, it's all lie. good. Yeah, I, I'm with you. So I think it's okay. that <laughs> I think um, the literature that we're seeing coming out about diversity and inclusion training is saying that it doesn't it doesn't often work in the way that people intend it to work. Yes. Um, and because so, it has to be deeper than that, it has to be about what it, personal change and desires to change and hiring and being more intentional about how what happens when somebody does get hired as well. Right. How do we yes. uh, lean into the expertise that people are coming with, you know, and not shut them down and say things like, you know, well, in this space, we do things this way. OK, but I'm coming from a different cultural context. And so how do I own that? Like, how do I mm. how do I appreciate that as well? Right. Yeah. So um, to, in that way, I think we're seeing a lot of places really. And I, and I think it's coming from a great place. So I want to say that first. Right. I think we see a lot of places really scrambling to do a lot to address the inequities, to address the social injustices. And that's fantastic and necessary, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, honestly, I can say, because again, I own my own company and I work for myself. So I can say, you know, <laughs> I think that there are some, there, there are some types of work uh, that need to be done within a particular cultural context. And so I, you know, there, there are, there are some, there's some work, for example, that black folks are going to do together as black folks to impact inclusion, to impact justice and equity hmm. uh, in a way that may look and be different than some white folks in some countries in some spaces. And that's okay. Cause we're coming yeah. at it from different perspectives. You know, we're coming at it from a different historical background. Yeah. And so to that end, you know, you, when some universities now are instituting freshmen, freshmen, year mandatory yes. anti-bias or anti-racism classes. And that's great if you have recognized that your campus is a predominantly white institution and the majority of your students are um, maybe not as aware of anti-racist policies and, and their own biases. And you need to do that to educate the, the campus community. That's great. But that also puts a circle around your institutional culture and says, this is, this is what our institutional culture is, which, you know, yeah. Let's be honest about those spaces, right? Historically, Black colleges, and I think that's one of the things that is so valuable in the world, and I don't think it's something that people really think about very much. Um, it is. It means something for there to be spaces that one can go into where your identity is not a threat every day, where the questions that you have from your faculty, the expectations that you have, are not um, you know, coming from a place of disenfranchisement, but rather that are centering your identity, right? 
And so historically black colleges, for example, may not have anti-racism classes. Right. You know, not that they, you know, not that people aren't encountering racism, they are, but that campus environment isn't the space where they necessarily need to process that because it's being processed all the time all the anyway. Time. Or yeah, it's within the context of, of, of where they are as yeah. a student body, as a as an institution. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, we have some questions. Hello, Spelman alumni. See there. <laughs> <laughs> um, be sure to pop your question in the question box. Um, so I'm going to read the question out. Um, Keisha, it sounds to me like Jedi is active transformation. Jedi is not happy to keep things as they are and seeks to make change. What are your best resources to stay on track with this work when the environment is often superficial and not committed as far as making changes? It's mm, a tough one. So I think one of the big things is being able to really track um, what one's hiring processes have been, you know, what uh, and, and not just, you know, hiring for diversity's sake, but also what kind of impact, what spaces are there that a person can impact in a, any given organization? Um, being able to see that students feel more empowered in their location. So some of it is maybe changing some of the survey questions, some of the assessment questions that are used mm. um, to really get at what, what students feel uh, in their program experiences, finding new methods also of assessment. And so it may not always be just the one survey form, you know, the, the fill in the blank or answer the question at the end of the program, because also that has a certain cultural context to it too, right? Some mm. of us are trained and taught that you, you, you're always polite. You always say the right thing. Like you don't, you know, you don't say when something's not okay. And so a lot of times in this, in, in this field, uh, in this industry, I have encountered students who really didn't have such a great kind of inclusive experience in their programs. And they didn't say anything about it during program because they were afraid of hurting someone's feelings. They weren't sure it was going to be taken. And they also didn't feel like there was anybody who would understand. You know? Right. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things too, of having, pe having people finding spaces where there are people who can, who can speak with students in different ways. We have some folks who, who we work with now in, in our agency who are trained in mental health, mental health and psychosocial support um, to help support students' needs in that way. So really having, a, I think, a more robust um, deck of folks that are working within any given organization is really helpful in that way. Um, also in terms of tracking, I think we haven't really looked often at the curricula um, within our programs as, as, as much as we need to. And so basically, yeah. I think Jedi is something that, as we know, like the force is everywhere, right? And so um, it's not just, right? It's not just um, in the scholarship team. It's not just in right. the, you know, it's not just over in the um, advising team. It has to be also in the curricula as well. What is the academic structure? Um, making sure that you do have instructor, instructors who are uh, not who are trained who are not just physically people of color, but also trained um, in disciplines that study their literature, culture, history, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I would say that for every marginalized group, that they need to be present um, and and really um, a part of the process. That's a big piece of it too. So it's not saying, okay, my I'm going to take my whole um, uh, Western trained or uh, white staff and, and, and have them make all the decisions for what we need uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion or, and, and justice to come through. We're also going to listen to people and bring them in to be part of the decision-making process in a way where they have genuine stake and will actually be heard. Yeah. And that's genuine. That will genuine. have a change. Yeah. Um, just to, to 
add to that question or to piggyback on it, um, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was a lot of fear I sensed in the field that diversity and inclusion would be sort of fall by the wayside um, in in sort of the way that people were cutting down teams, right? Because of a real issue, like a real problem with people not traveling anymore. And now I feel that given the movement that's happened in the US and globally with Black Lives Matter, that that feels a little bit different now. Does that, do you feel the same way that there's a little bit more hope that there, that we'll keep this in our field, that this will be something that people continue to make change on and um, start working on in a, in a more genuine way? To some degree, yes. I mean, I do feel optimistic. Um, and at the same time, I feel like it's terrible, but it's this is what I feel like. If yeah. we're here to talk to truth, <laughs> this is what this is all about. Be honest. Yeah, I mean, really and truly, um, the cuts that came at the very beginning of the pandemic suggested that um, there was a narrow focus in, in how and where diversity, equity, and inclusion was to make an impact. Mm. And so it was only kind of thinking about um, students, and again, even in a very narrow way. So like my position as a senior director of diversity and inclusion getting cut said right away, oh, okay, there's still so much more work that has to be done. This is even, especially, especially yeah. during the pandemic, when you have people all over the world who are being impacted by this in different ways, right? Yeah. And so organizations rush to online learning. That's great, but from a just from a Jedi perspective, what do you do to ensure that all the students who are going into online learning have the capacity for online learning? Yep. What do you do to talk to students to guide them through um, how to manage their background, how to manage their settings so that the classroom can still stay an equitable space, right? Mm. It yeah, matters that you have students right in that class yeah. that may not have adequate uh, Wi-Fi. And so I've got colleagues, friends who are in some rural towns in America who were having their students walking around with their phones in parking lots of fast food restaurants to take their classes because there was no Wi-Fi at home and there was only one laptop in the house and the parent who was the breadwinner needed that needed laptop, yeah. right? Yes. yes. So these are all Jedi issues. These are all issues that are centered in this work that quickly, I think, disappeared in the very beginning, like the very, very beginning stages of the pandemic. Yeah. And then the unfortunate thing is that it took, um, it took the losing of, of another life, yet another life, and a focus on the loss of that life and the tragedy that happened with, the lose, with, with George Floyd's passing and the way that it happened for the world to stand up and, and pay attention to something that people have been talking about for years yeah. and literally all over the world. You know, like we know about Stephen Lawrence in London, we know about all over the world this has been happening to black folks and other people, but predominantly, and I think that's an important thing to just recognize. So often the ways in which diversity, equity, and inclusion are talked about in the US, are talked about in our field, we're talking about it uh, in a way that wants to be everything to everyone. And we do need to be equitable. We do need to have opportunities for everybody to find their space and to be in this place. But there are some particular conversations that we have to still have about race and that we have to have about the specificities of uh, intersectionality, right? What yeah. happens when you have a black gay male studying abroad in Spain? 
or in, you know, pick a place, right? Yeah. There are some, some specifics to that particular identity that come from the intersectionality standpoint that have to be thought about. And we can't just say, you know, we're open to everyone and then not deal with it. So long, long way around the question. But not at all. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. And it, it's yeah. really loaded, you know? And so yeah. I think, um, I do think that I'm still optimistic and I'm really excited by the ways that organizations are also using this time to think more critically about um, how to make an impact, how to make changes in this space. Um, I'm encouraged by uh, the amount of people who've been kind of reaching out to me personally and saying, hey, you know, uh, how are you these days? What's going on? And I know that's an entry to say, what are you doing these days? And where are you? Yeah. You know, um, and I'm hearing that from other colleagues as well who are similarly impact in in impacted in terms of job loss. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think, I think it is encouraging. I just think that we have to really... Um, be strategic about how we think in this time so that we can be prepared for the world reopening and for students traveling again. Cause I know that they will, like we're, we're already seeing people who are like, yeah. I know they said, don't go there, but I'm on a mountain right now in Dubrovnik. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> students are still going to be students. That's what we do now. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, another question here popping up. Um, from Chelsea, Spelman College is not only an HBCU, it's a women's college as well. So I see it as an additional layer of space. It's just only for black students, it's specifically black women. Do you feel more empowered there versus your other higher educational experiences? I'd love to hear more about your experience there and how it informed your future educational and professional endeavors. I love that question yeah. because we were talking about wanting to talk about this more. Go. Yeah, yeah it's such a great <laughs> question. And there's so many layers in it. Yeah. So um, Spelman is a women's college. It is a black women's, historically black women's college. And so I will tell you that I did not want to go there in the beginning. I'm going to be totally honest about this because both of my parents went to HBCUs because all of my aunties and uncles, like play aunties and uncles, you know, cousins and people yes. who they went to school with all went to HBCUs. That's all I heard growing up. And my parents went to Central State, uh, which is in Ohio, and it is in, in, in cornfields. And I just, nothing about my personality suggested that I was gonna have the kind of experience that they had, right? <laughs> nothing about it, right? So I had picked schools everywhere else. They made they made a promise with me that we could go and visit all of the schools that I wanted to see. And we, again, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So this required driving from the, from the, from the North all the way down uh, to Atlanta to visit every college that I had on my list. The one agreement that I had to make with my parents is that every school, that for every school I picked, they would pick an HBCU for me to visit. Like, okay, fine. If that's what's going to get me to my schools, that's fine. I just, so, side note, I love you and I love your parents. I just love, <laughs> continue. <laughs> it's like the worst kind of punishment, but at the same time, I'm like, all right, that's what's going to take. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come to a truce. So mm -hmm. we got to Spelman. And, and I should say that the school that I really wanted to go to at the time was also in Atlanta. And I was, I, my, my hope so high. We got to the school for the tour and they told us that we were 10 minutes late. Now, mind you, we've been on the road for like two weeks trying to make this trip. And we got there and we were just a little bit late for the appointment to see the campus. And they told us that we wouldn't be able to have the tour. Oh, no. So I tried to tell my mom, no, no, it's okay. That's just how I do it. You know, that, that's just how they do it at the big schools, right? I'm totally undervaluing her college experience. This woman has almost like completed her doctoral degree. She had a master's degree. They're both educators. And I'm trying to tell her how this works. Sure. And so <laughs> they say, okay, but that, you know, we'll walk around the school with you, but we're just go, we'll just go to Spelman now and, and, and uh, you know, we'll, see, we'll go there and we'll call it a day. Sam, we got to the campus. 
and I felt it the minute I entered the campus. Like I wasn't even all the way through the gate. And this woman, this fellow student says to me, hey sister, how you doing? Do you need some help? Where are you trying to go? And I felt immediately seen. Mm. I felt immediately welcomed. She stopped what she was doing and walked me and my family around the campus, took us to the admissions office. And Spellman taught me what it meant to be a black woman in a way that nowhere else in this world could have done. Wow. Nowhere. There are other institutions that we do have another sister school um, with a similar kind of history, but there's there was there was something about the size and the scope of Spelman, um, it being a very competitive institution. So that was an issue. My parents were like, so you're gonna turn down full scholarships to Ivy League colleges because Yes, yes, you will. You know, they're like, yes, you need to do that because to them, of course, HBCUs had this cultural currency. Yeah, and it was it was going on on a limb for me. Especially, I lost all of my high school friends around that choice um, because they didn't understand. Oh God! All of my high school friends, they didn't understand that choice. Um, Mm -hmm. Those who were going to go to college, they all kept saying, "Well, we're going here, we're going there. Why would you want to go to a black school?" And I wasn't. I, oh. Even though I had a lot of experiences, I still wasn't able to really articulate what it could do for me. I just knew that it was the right fit. You felt it. It was, um, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I met Black women and Latina women, Afro-Latina women. I met um, Black adjacent people yeah. um, who were all about celebrating and honoring and appreciating Black women's culture in a way that was just a life-saving for me. I learned about gender in new ways there. Um, the Women's Studies Center was there. I became part of a gay and lesbian association while I was at Spelman um, because that's a space that we often also don't talk about very much in our HBCUs. Um, yeah. And Spelman was one of the first schools to really say, you know, we need an organization. We need a space for these women to feel safe in and to feel included in and, and seen in um, and not regardless of their gender, but inclusive of their gender identity, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an incredible space. Uh, and I, you know, I was working with professors there, both in women's studies department and English, who um, held me up and supported me throughout my entire life. That's amazing. I mean, this is, you, I know you've shared with me before sort of the transformation and in the impactfulness that you can get from education and, and international education. But what an Im- what an impact it had on you is amazing. I certainly didn't have that impact with my undergrad. I'm very jealous now. <laughs> Never <laughs> gone home, right, to to a university. But that is, yeah, that's powerful. Thank you so much really for sharing that. Yeah. yeah, the question was really great too. I think I'll just add to that the the, the um, graduate school part. So yes. um, while I was at Spelman, um, I was one of the things that was so great is that one of my faculty members was um, is was Siga Zhang who is uh, Senegalese, uh, sorry, Gambian by birth. Uh, she lives in the Gambia again now. She had gone to Binghamton University. And okay. so that's one of the things about the HBCU experience that I think we don't talk about very much is how nurturing and how family oriented they are. So Sika saw my passion for Caribbean women's lit at the time, African women's lit. And she said, you need to include Binghamton in your choices. This is where Carol Boyce Davies is, is studying, is, is teaching now. She was one of my professors. You know, we were reading her work. We we're reading Nambika, which is a um, uh, one of the first um, critical um, collections on African women's literature, mm-hmm. and you know, edited by Carol and some others. And so it was this intentional kind of thing of saying, "Here's a trajectory for you to follow to consider for your graduate program," and there are fellowships there. And yeah. so they really kind of guided me even through thinking about that process. Um, I made the choice of Binghamton, as I said, because Carol and others were there but also because I knew that 
I didn't need because of because of how well Spellman had prepared me to be whole and feel empowered and have agents have sense of agency in the world. I didn't feel like I needed to get that from a graduate school community. I needed just the educational piece. I didn't yeah. need the social piece, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I had a great, you know, community of people who were at Binghamton who were also studying similar topics, and that helped. That's amazing. What a journey. We um, we often get questions around how people decide to do further education, master's degrees, PhDs, things like that. And and some t the question can often be around: Do I need to tick this box in order to be? in international education and get a job. And I think what we often say is you can, you can choose that, but but there's also a beauty in, in being really interested in something and really just wanting to follow that, as you said, thread. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're a perfect example of, of just this true interest in something and um, sort of voracious following of, of, of your interests and academic pursuits. Uh, so yeah, very inspiring. Um, we have another question from uh, Mark. Um, are you feeling opt? Uh, maybe you've already answered. I'm going to read it out anyway, but we may have already covered. It. Are you feeling optimistic about the future of study abroad? Do you think the Jedi changes we all want will come soon enough? So um, I, I definitely am optimistic, but part of the reason why I'm optimistic is because I am personally recentered in my agency. Yeah. I am real I'm looking at the world from an inclusive lens that suggests that we have majority institutions um and that those majority institutions majority surviving institutions are doing deeper and broader work in the field of international education and study abroad specifically um I am optimistic because more people are looking to those institutions to partner with them to do further work with them uh, to consider what it means to have sites of knowledge and, and knowledge production that are uh, not only not necessarily Eurocentric or centered in, in the Western experience, but that are intentionally centered in the experiences of people of color and, and people who have been traditionally marginalized and, minor and minoritized. When it comes to the soon enough part, it's a, it's a tricky piece because I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, so I grew up with parents who came up during the civil rights era, right? My mother went to the March on Washington. And um, I know that my my mother was the first in her side of her family to go to college. Or sorry, her grandfather went to college, but she's the only one of her siblings yeah. who went to college. Um, I know that for her and for my grandparents, both of my parents represented changes in the world that they never believed that they would see happen. Mm. My mother lived to see President Obama become elected president of the United States. Mm. Um, she passed away four years ago. Um, and it means something really, means something really important to me yeah. that she lived to see that moment and that she lived to see past that, that she was able to work on his campaign, that she um, was able to see me become a dean of a college, that she was able to see my brother become this worldwide international superstar in the world of dance um, and be received wow. well as a black gay man in dance, leading his own dance company. It means a lot to me that my parents were able to live to an age where they saw those changes happen. Mm. We know that every generation of parents, every generation wants the, the best for their next generation. There's no way that my parents or my grandparents could have dreamed or imagined that their children would have seen as much of the world as they have seen and be able to impact so many other people getting a chance to see the rest of the world. And that gives me hope 
because it makes me recognize that our sense of time needs to have in it a recognition of how historical time also moves, mm. you know? Yeah. So much has happened in the last 20 years. So much has happened in the last 40 years. So much has happened in the last 60 years. And so if we're here right now, I have great faith and great courage, great, great belief that change is coming. And it is coming at a pace that will match our impact, that will match mm -hmm. our input on that impact. You're so inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. I also, I feel optimistic as well, because I think it's sometimes worth saying that our field, international education, is really a young field. I think uh, we've seen a lot of changes just within the type of programs, um, the type of, of topics, academic topics, locations that students go to. And, you know, I keep thinking about that, especially in this Jedi space, that it's all new. So why not make space for this quote unquote new thing that isn't new? It's just yeah. been existing alongside it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like the natural place, it feels like the natural transitions that we need to be making now. You know, when yeah. I went abroad to um, Italy, there were no program advisors. There was nobody for me to talk to about what it was like to be 16 and black and living in communities where people had never seen a person of color before. There right. was nobody okay. to talk to. I didn't talk to my parents about that. I didn't talk to the, to the company who sent me. Nobody. There wasn't anybody. You know, and now we're at a place where we're sending huge numbers of folks. So now the number, of course, numbers and the changes need to continue to grow, but major changes in the, in the last 50 years or so. <sighs> Thank you, Keisha. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, we're going to end on some rapid fire questions. Um, if anyone has any other questions, ask now. Forever hold your peace as we go through. Um, this is actually a, um, it's an interesting question to ask you because you have done so much quote unquote study abroad or international study. But if you could study abroad again, knowing everything you know now, where would you go and what would you do? Mm. I know, but I feel like you've literally done that. <laughs> you, you did an iterative study abroad with all of the different experiences. Well, I think one of the things I would probably do is go to, I know, I would do a, a combined program. Now let me go to- Of course you would. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> I would like to go to New Zealand to study indigenous culture mm. um, and understand indigenous uh, healing systems there. And I would go from there probably um, actually back to Turkey um, to look a little bit more deeply at knowledge systems there in a similar way, um, the preservation of um, historical African spiritual traditions in Turkey. Um, I started oh, to kind wow. of learn a little bit about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, I got a hint cool. of it when I was in Turkey and I want to go back and learn more about that. Okay. Um, and I'd probably, um, I'd probably also go to Benin um, okay. to kind of round out that, that, that experience. experience. That, that, yeah. That particular kind of course I'd be creating for myself. Okay. Good, good answer. I mean, I, I had no doubts about that. Um, what is your advice for anyone wanting to work in international education right now? So that could be future Jedis. It could also be anyone. Our field is so up in the air. What What is your advice to people? There's a place for you. 
no matter what your interest is, no matter what your particular skill set is, no matter what your background is, there's a place for you. The field is so broad and there's so many tasks for us to do. There's so many different yeah. types of work to do. I think the thing is, is reach out to somebody, start talking to us because it's one of the most, it's the friendliest community that I've ever been in professionally. Oh, true. <laughs> so there's definitely <laughs> going to be somebody out there. You put your hand out and there's going to be somebody out there to meet your hand and shake it. Yeah. Oh man, I agree with that. I think that's the best part of our field is um, the conversations you have um, on the side or before you jump on a live podcast. <laughs> um, what is the best advice you've ever gotten in your career? No overemphasis, but I'll just say it. Take your lunch. Yes. Take say more. Lunch. Yep. So I was in yoga school. This is <laughs> I'm actually glad you're bringing this up because that was one of the questions I didn't get to is how this this wellness and yoga space that you also live and work in. Yeah. So so I'm a trained uh, yoga yoga teacher, uh, Arabic yoga specialist. And the first yoga uh, teacher's training program I went to, which was a really intense program, it was like six months long at the Synergy Yoga Center in Miami Beach. Um, when they brought back guest teachers to give our final lecture for us, they told us that, take your lunch. And I thought, what's the big deal about lunch? So at that point, I didn't even know about Ayurveda, right? I didn't even know that it was the, uh, from an Ayurvedic perspective, you want to always have your biggest meal of the day uh, in the middle of the day because oh, okay. it's digestion is at the highest, you're firing on all cylinders. It's when you need the most fuel, right? To get mm. through the rest of the day. Um, and so what it meant to me, what it's meant to me over the years is so often, like we're so busy and we take lunch for granted, especially if we work outside of our homes, even in our homes. And, you know, you can pass right through lunch and then realize, well, it's dinner time now. What am I going to do? Yeah, um, yeah. When you take your lunch, it means kind of sitting somewhere, embracing some degree of silence, gathering your thoughts and being with yourself taking your time, chewing slowly, being reflective, and really giving yourself the time to um, go through one of the most important rituals that we do on a daily basis in our lives. Um, when I worked on a campus, I used to have students, you know, I would literally hide. I would find, you know, backs of buildings, places with beautiful views to sit and look at, you know, the garden or at the lake, depending on the campus I was on. Mm -hmm. And I would have students run up to me and they would say, Dr. Abraham, I have a question for you. Can I ask you real quick? No, honey, I'm having my lunch right now. I know, I know. That's what I want to ask you right now. No, sweetheart. <laughs> Boundaries are also important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you may talk to me as soon as I finish my lunch. And you can't, and don't, don't you know, try to sit down, like, wait, they're going to wait for me to, mm -mm. you can sit on the bench next to me <laughs> over there until I'm finished with my lunch because this time is precious. And I think we just give, a, we give, a, we give and give and give and give and give and give so much. Yeah. That that little bit of take is really okay. Yeah. I, I agree. I think um, I, I think a lot of people have talked a lot, especially in lockdown and being at home about changing their space and their routines. Um, and that has been something I, I was never a lunch taker. Um, and my colleagues would always give me a hard time. But now I, I do. I do take a lunch. And it's a huge difference. Why is it such a hard thing to do? Yeah. But it makes a huge difference in your mindset. And you need that break. You know, really do. If you're going to be a Jedi, you need to pause. That's right. That's right. Before you need to you're going to be there when you get back. That's right. Embrace stillness. Embrace your breath. Right. Yeah. Keisha, thank you so much. Um, thank you to everyone that listened, especially my very first time leading a podcast. I, I'm honestly humbled um, to have have done this with you, um, and I hope I did you justice, and I hope everyone feels the same way. I've learned so much. Um, and I feel like I'm going to continue to learn. 
Um, thank you to everyone for coming. Those of you that stuck around, I know we can talk a lot. Um, I just want to end with thanking everyone for being here. Please have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll see you at the next Inside Chat. Um, thank you. Don't know how to end these. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks, thank everybody, you. for being here. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Now, don't forget, head to insidestudyabroad.com slash labs if you want to learn more about the Global Pro Labs and online trainings we're launching in 2021 and the limited time special bundle bonus discount that we're offering. And if you're interested in joining the Global Pro Institute in January when we open the doors for their internship program, definitely make sure you get on the wait list for that. So just go to insidestudyabroad.com slash GPI and it'll take you to a page where you can insert your information and make sure you are on the wait list. We always do sort of an early bird launch for uh, the people on the email list. So we open up doors at a discount to the email list first before we roll it out to the rest of the list and then start talking about it you know, on social media and around the web and things. So make sure you're on the wait list if you're interested in the Global Pro Institute and Internship Program coming up in late January. Until next time, remember that every day you postpone a dream, you weaken it just a little. So get out there and make some magic happen. Cheers. Thank you.